right, so this morning uh, we're going to look at uh, a familiar passage and a familiar uh, Bible story that many of you probably uh, grew up with. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and would like one or if you need one, uh, there are plenty in the back on that little table by the blessings box. Um, but, But we'll be looking at the story or the account, I should say, of Noah's Ark today. Um, like I said, if you grew up in church, or maybe even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably at least heard heard of Noah's Ark. You've probably heard the story. Uh, you probably learned fun kids' songs growing up about Noah and his Arky Arky. Uh, you probably had fun children's books. Or you probably colored pictures of Noah, Noah's Ark, of, of all the cute little animals and the, the rainbow and the, and the sunshine. Um, we're probably all familiar with it. Uh, but I wonder how many of us have actually stopped to consider uh, the meaning behind the account of Noah's Ark. Uh, I think it's so easy uh, sometimes, right, to, just to become another Bible story that we learned growing up. And we, and we just kind of, you know, rattle off from Noah. Noah built the ark. God told him to two by two. Every animal, flood came, rainbow, and, and then that's the end of the story. And, and we just kind of move on. So I want to look at this account today, this historical uh, account, and, and really get at uh, what God was teaching us or telling us through this account. And by the way, I do want to emphasize that this is a historical account. Uh, it's often very easy for us to just fall into the thinking that these, these stories in the Old Testament in the Bible are just these, these mythical accounts. Um, but it's a historical account, something that happened in the history of the world to, to real people and real animals. I could get into all the, all the evidence and all, all the science behind this and stuff. Uh, I, I don't have time for that today. If you're interested in that, uh, I would suggest checking out Answers in Genesis. They're kind of the, the resident experts on the whole flood narrative. Or I would send you to Pastor Dave. He, uh, he's into it. He, he knows it all. I'm sure he'd be happy uh, to talk to you about it. So if you have questions about that, those are good and real questions. Um, we don't have time for today, but I would send you to Answers in Genesis or to Pastor Dave. And again, I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about it. But again, today we want to focus on the meaning of this account, of this historical account. And the main question I want to ask us this morning and that I want us to consider is, where do we find ourselves in the story of Noah's Ark? Where do we find ourselves in the story of Noah's Ark? And so to get at that question, I, I kind of want to do a broad overview of the whole narrative uh, of Noah's Ark. And so we'll start in Genesis 6, and we'll just look at a few verses here and there, all the way through Genesis chapter 8. We won't go through the whole story. We'd be here all morning if we uh, did that. Um, but just hitting a few selections of it to kind of get a sense of the broad overview of what God is doing in this account. And so to begin, look with me, Genesis chapter 6, look at verses 9 and 10 first. Let me, let me read them for you. If your translation sounds different uh, than mine, that, that's okay. The meaning is the same, but just follow along the best you can. But Genesis 6, 9 and 10 says this. These are the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I know... Notice how the account of Noah's ark begins. It, it begins with Noah. And it begins with God pointing out that Noah is a righteous man. It says he's, he's blameless in his generation. He walked with the Lord. This is significant. This is one of those little details that's easy to just look past. But when you really look at it, it's significant. The story begins with one righteous man. A man who walks with God, who shares intimacy with him. And so we're introduced to Noah first. Moving on, look at verses 11 through 13 now. Immediately after introducing us to Noah, God now turns to the rest of the world and explains uh, what the world is like. He says this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In these verses, we see God describing the the sinfulness, the wickedness, and, and the corruption of the world. It almost gets repetitive just in those three verses, doesn't it? Right away, he said that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw, and behold, it was corrupt. He, he repeats himself right away. He, he's highlighting just, just how wicked and sinful the rest of the world is. Think just a few chapters before this, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account where God created the world and said it was all very good. And then Genesis 3 is when sin enters the world, when, when Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they, they rebel against their creator, and it's through them that sin enters the world. And now just three chapters later, we see God saying, all of mankind is so wicked, so corrupt, filled with violence, I will make an end to all flesh. Think about Adam and Eve, that as one sin began with them and entered the human race, as Adam and Eve multiplied across the face of the earth, so did sin multiply with their offspring. You see that in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, where Cain murders his brother. And then through Genesis 4 and 5, it talks about sin, the extent of their sin and the intensity of their sin. It multiplies as humans multiply across the earth because of their sin nature that they've inherited from their parents, Adam and Eve. And so we get to Genesis 6. And this is the picture of the world that God gives us, a world filled with corruption through the sinfulness of man. Notice how the corruption and sinfulness of the world is contrasted with the righteousness of Noah. Verses 9 and 10, he he points out Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But the rest of the world is corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence. 
The, 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 the contrast cannot be more stark. Noah's righteousness over here, this one man's righteousness, the rest of the world's unrighteousness. Right? Noah is blameless, complete, upright, holy, sound in God's sight. The rest of the world is spoiled, ruined in God's sight. And so God looks over the rest of the world and he says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Now, this may seem harsh to us. So I think if we're being honest, we, we read that, and there's part of us that kind of balks at that. We're like, how could God determine to just make an end of all flesh? Right? But, but this is good, and this is right of God to do this. God, being just, being right, being holy, will not allow sin to just run rampant in his creation. He will not allow his good creation to be spoiled and ruined by man's wickedness. He will not allow his glory to be belittled. God, in his holiness, has the prerogative to judge sin whenever, wherever, and however he pleases. And because he's a just judge, his judgments are always right. And perfect. He has the right to judge sin wherever, whenever, and however he pleases. And it's always right. And so in this case, God, in his perfect right justice, determines that he's going to judge the world and he's going to cleanse it from all sin and unrighteousness. Now look at verse 14 with me. So God describes the whole world. We know Noah's righteous now. Verse 14, he turns to Noah now and he says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God starts getting into the details now. And in verse 17, he actually gives Noah the details of how he's going to go about bringing an end to all flesh. He said, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Right, the water, the water is significant. Water has a cleansing power to it. Right, so when God says he'll bring a flood, he, he's getting at the fact that he's going to cleanse the earth from all the sin and unrighteousness. And so verse 17 ends with that sentence there, everything that is on the earth shall die. And then look at verse 18. And just look at the, the word that begins verse 18. Verse 17 ends, everything on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but. Isn't that a significant word? Considering that it comes right after the fact that God said everything on earth is going to die in the flood. Doesn't it just give you just a little sliver of hope? All flesh shall perish in the flood, but kind of shifts the narrative, doesn't it? There's hope. He's going to do something. There is a but. 
And what is that? What is it that God's going to do? Verse 18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. If you're reading the NLT, that's what our Bibles are in the back. It says that God solemnly swears to keep Noah safe in the boat. And that a more literal translation is that it's God makes a covenant with Noah. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It binds these two parties together in a relationship on the basis of mutual commitment. So God creates this agreement, more or less, this covenant with Noah. And so if one party breaks his end of the covenant, then there are consequences. But if he's faithful to the covenant, then there are blessings in store. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see God making a covenant with a whole group of people. And he often does it through a representative, through one man. So we see this with Abraham or with David. God makes a covenant with the people of Israel through that one person. And we see God doing the same thing right here. He makes a covenant with Noah. And then look at verse 18. Who else does he include in the covenant? Noah's family as well, right? So think of Noah. Noah is the righteous one. We've seen that. The, the, the righteous, blameless one before God. God makes a covenant with him. And then he tells Noah that everyone who is united to Noah, everyone who's joined to him, so to say, will receive the benefits of this covenant. They too, Noah's family along with him, will pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. And on the flip side, all of those who do not have Noah as their representative, those who have not been joined to Noah, will endure God's just judgment in the flood. And if Noah is faithful to this covenant, if he is obedient to this covenant until the very end, he, along all of those people who are with him, all of his family members, will be saved. And Noah is indeed obedient. Three times in chapter 7. Genesis 7, verse 5, Genesis 7, verse 9, and then verse 16 as well. God highlights Noah's obedience. Look at verse 5. Just reading that verse, it says, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah is obedient. Verse 9. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. He's still obedient. Finally, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Noah, God has established a covenant with Noah, and Noah is faithful and obedient to that covenant because he is a righteous and blameless man before the Lord. And notice how the the emphasis is on Noah's obedience. Nowhere does he say, and and Noah's family obeyed. Noah's family did just as God had commanded them. The the emphasis is on Noah's righteousness. The emphasis is on Noah's obedience to the covenant. And all the emphasis is on him because he is the covenant representative. 
The salvation of Noah's family does not lie in their righteousness or in their obedience to the covenant. Their salvation lies in the righteousness and in the obedience of Noah, their covenant representative. And so by virtue of their being in the ark with Noah, the righteous one, his righteousness is credited to them so that they are saved as well. And so when the floodwaters of God's wrath come, everything is indeed blotted out. Look at 7, verses 22 and 23. The floodwaters have come. And it says, Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Kind of a stark picture, isn't it? Uh, so often we, we picture Noah's ark and we picture this fun little kid's story where the sun is shining and they're all just having a good time on the boat. But I think maybe a, a better picture of it would be if you could just, just picture the, the ark, the, the giant boat with Noah, all the animals on it. Just sitting, you, you've been to the ocean, you see how it just goes forever and you, just, you don't see anything but the water. I imagine just the, the ark just sitting on the water, nothing else in sight, under cloudy, dark, grim skies. Maybe even some thunder and lightning and rain just pouring down. While everything else on the earth, it says, is blotted out by the flood waters of God's judgment. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 1. And just like before we saw this, look at, look at the words that start chapter 8. Chapter 7 ends with that stark picture of, of the flood of God's judgment. And then chapter 8 begins with the words, but God... But God, can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where those two words are used to kind of shift the narrative? There may be other places, but the the one verse that stands out in my mind, the most famous but God verse in the whole Bible is Ephesians 2 verse 4. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So you see that that but God phrase used in Genesis 8, and you see it used right there in Ephesians 2-4, speaking about us being united to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That phrase, but God, it highlights God's action. It shows that God is going to do something. In those words, but God, that they open the door for hope to enter in into a condition of hopelessness. It, it makes me think of a room. Think of yourself in a, in a room filled with utter darkness. There are no windows. No windows, but there are a couple of doors. 
And, and so you go around and you, you, you check all the doors to see if you can get out. And you, you realize that all the doors are locked and they're, they're shut tight. So you, you're, you're trapped in this room of utter darkness. There's, there's no light. You see nothing. And so you're just in this, this room, this, this position of utter hopelessness. When all of a sudden, you hear a sound, and, and you look over, and, and one of the doors just cracks open just a little bit, and just light comes flooding into the room, and you're filled with hope. That's what the words, but God, are like here in Genesis 8-1 and in Ephesians 2-4. Last night, I stayed up late to watch uh, Michigan play in the NCAA tournament. And so it's late, it's past midnight, and it gets to the end of the game. I don't know if any of you watched or saw this morning, but they were down two with 3.8 seconds left. They missed a shot. Houston gets a rebound, and they get fouled. And so I'm, I'm tired already, and I think, all right, it's, it's done. It's over. There is no hope. I turn the TV off, and I go to bed mildly disappointed because they lost, and there's no hope. And if any of you follow the NCAA tournament, I, I get up this morning, and I turn my phone on, I'm all groggy, and I, I'm getting all these notifications coming in, and I, all these strange headlines, and I'm reading them going, what? What happened? Is something happening in this game? And finally I open it and I look and I go, oh, they won. <laughs> How? I, I mean, the, the situation was utterly hopeless. They're down two. Houston's going to go shoot free throws. All they had to do was make one and the, or two and the game's over. Right? I turn on my phone and, and the good news comes to me in my utter hopelessness, in my despair from the night before is turned to joy. Right? That's what the words, but God, are like. That's how the gospel should always come to us. Like light flooding into a dark room. Like good news coming to, to quench the thirst of our weary souls. That's what the words, but God, are like here in Genesis 8.1. And what's the, the but God moment in Genesis 8.1? What does God do? It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. When it says God remembers, this doesn't mean that God had forgotten. He didn't go to do something else and then all of a sudden remember oh, Noah in the ark. Almost forgot about him. All right. Now what that means, it means rather that God had never forgotten about Noah in the ark. God had remembered his covenant with him, and he was always intent on fulfilling his promises that he made in that covenant. So Noah and his family are as safe as God's memory of his covenant promises. God does not forget his promises. We've all had people make promises and not follow through. We've probably all been those people who have made promises and not followed through. But praise God that he does not forget his promises and that he is always faithful to fulfill every single one. So God remembers his covenant with Noah and being faithful to his covenant with Noah, he begins to make a wind blow over the earth so that the flood waters begin to subside. And then in verse 13, after months 
in the ark. Months of that, that, that hopelessness, that, that darkness. Months of God's judgment cleansing the earth. Noah and his family step out onto dry ground. And that's the story or the account of Noah's Ark. If I could summarize the storyline of Noah's Ark in one sentence, I I would summarize it like this. God judges the earth, but all who come into the Ark with the righteous man are saved. God judges the earth, but all who come into the Ark with the righteous man are saved. That's the storyline of Noah's Ark. And it's a storyline that should sound familiar because it's the essential storyline of the gospel. So turn with me to 1 Peter now 3, 18 through 21. You're going from close to the beginning of the Bible almost to the back. From Old Testament to New Testament. In this passage, 1 Peter 3, 18-21, that we'll read in a second, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, he, he references the story of Noah's Ark, and he explicitly connects Noah's Ark to the Gospel story. All right, read these verses with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, in this passage, shows us that Noah's Ark, that, that that story of Noah's Ark was a shadow of something greater. It shows us that when God was saving Noah and his family in the Ark, he was also laying the foundation for how he would save his people once and for all thousands of years later. He, this prefigures the work of Christ and what he would accomplish. Now look at verse 18. He begins by saying that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the same contrast we see at the beginning of the story of Noah's Ark. One righteous man contrasted with the unrighteousness of the world. And so to answer our question from when I first started, this is where we find ourselves in the story of Noah's Ark. We are the unrighteous ones in the world, the the corrupted, sinful, wicked people in the world. So often we read the Old Testament, we like to read ourselves into the story as the heroes. We like to to read Noah's Ark and think that that we're Noah, we're the ones who are are strong. We we obey God and we, we save the people. But the reality of Noah's Ark is that we are the rest of the world, sinful and wicked and unrighteous. Jesus is the, the true and greater Noah. 
the, the, the true righteous and blameless one before God. And notice how he says in verse 18 that Christ, the righteous one, suffered once for the sins of the unrighteous ones. So when Jesus died on the cross, he suffered in the place of unrighteous sinners. Just a little earlier in this letter, 1 Peter 1.24, Peter writes, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And as Jesus bore our sin and unrighteousness in his body on the tree, the floodwaters of God's judgment were poured out onto Christ on the cross. And as he took the floodwaters of God's judgment upon himself, the sins of the unrighteous ones were washed away and cleansed as he drank the full cup of God's wrath towards our sin. And three days later, when the waters of God's judgment had subsided, Christ stepped out of the grave and onto dry ground, showing that he had passed safely through the waters of God's judgment. Do do we see the parallels here between Noah and Christ, between that account and the account of, of the gospel story? Just as Noah was called righteous and blameless, so is Jesus the true righteous and blameless one. Just as as the rest of the world was corrupt and unrighteous in the days of Noah, so are we all unrighteous and corrupt before God now. Just as Noah preached to the nations in order that they would come with him into the ark in order to be saved, so does Jesus today preach to the nations that they would come with him into the ark in order to be saved. And just as the people who entered the ark with Noah passed safely through the waters of God's judgment, so does everyone who believes in the name of Jesus pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Jesus in faith, when we believe on his name and trust in him alone for our salvation, It is as though we are entering into the ark with him. And when we enter into the ark with him, just as he passed safely through the waters of God's judgment, so do we too pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. And as Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been joined to him, united to him by faith alone. So that in him, your sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away by the waters of God's judgment. And you have come through the waters safe and clean. I was reading about this past week, kind of studying for this. And Scott Saul, as an author, said this. He said, in Jesus, our judgment day was moved from the future to the past. And I love that. Our judgment day in Christ was moved from the future to the past. No longer something we look forward to with uh, obviously being something we're afraid of, something we're, we're dreading, but something that is now behind us and that we no longer fear. And Peter says in verse 21, That baptism 
Water baptism is a picture of this. It's not that baptism is actually what saves us. He says it, it doesn't actually cleanse sin away. It's not, it doesn't cleanse dirt from the body. But the waters of baptism are a beautiful picture of what happens when we put our faith in Christ. Next week, when we have our first indoor baptism in here, as we baptize people, as we, they stand in the water, as we lower them into the water and raise them up out of the water, we are testifying outwardly to the inward reality that they have been joined to Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It's a sign that their sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away by the waters of God's judgment. And that they have come through those waters safe and clean. That's why baptism is so important as a believer in Christ. And so if I can just put a plug in for next week, that's why we celebrate it. That's why it's so important. That's why I would encourage you here this morning, if you have not been baptized as a believer in Christ, would you consider it for next week? Again, a public sign, a testimony that you have been joined to Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. A sign that you have passed safely through the waters of God's judgment. And so would you consider being baptized as a believer next week? In closing, in worship team, you can come forward. Let me try to bring this, this, this home now and kind of bring it to a close where it can fall on us personally. I'll go back to that question I asked at the very beginning. Where do we find ourselves in the story of Noah's ark? The message that was being preached through Noah is the same message of Jesus that is being preached all over the world today. Turn from your sin and come with the righteous man into the ark and be saved. And just like in Noah's day, we, the unrighteous ones in the world, find ourselves confronted with this message. Jesus, the righteous one, is calling out to us. He's calling us, turn from your sin and unrighteousness. Warning us that because of our sin and unrighteousness, the wrath of God is coming. Calling us to turn away from our sin, to come with him into the ark, where we will find safety and refuge from the wrath of God. Before it's too late. Before the flood comes. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. When he said this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. As in the days of Noah, the flood of God's judgment is coming. And right now, every single one of us finds himself in one of two places. 
Either we are inside the ark, having trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, having turned to him in faith and believed on his name. Or we are outside the ark, continuing to live in sin and rebellion, awaiting God's judgment. So where do we find ourselves in the story of Noah's ark? Have we gone into the ark, hidden ourselves in Christ? Or are we continuing to live in the world, in sin and rebellion? The opening hymn, uh, or opening line of the hymn, Rock of Ages, you might be familiar with this hymn. The opening line goes like this. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. And for all of us in here this morning who have trusted in Christ for our salvation, that is gloriously true of us. We have hidden ourselves in Christ. His blood has saved us from wrath, has cleansed us from all sin and unrighteousness, and is continuing to make us pure every day. And if you're in here today and you have not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray that as we sing this last song, that that you would just consider that line right there. And that you would cry out to Jesus and make those words your own. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. I pray that you today would make those words your own and cry out to him for your salvation. Would you stand with me and pray as we close? Father God, we know that you are holy and just and righteous. And we know that we are unrighteous, unworthy of your grace and and worthy of nothing but your judgment. Yet God, we thank you that in your mercy and in your grace, you have sent your son Jesus, the righteous one, to suffer on the cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you that by faith in him, we can come into the ark where we can find refuge, where we can be saved from your wrath and from your judgment. Lord, I pray this morning for all of us who have turned to to Christ in faith, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of what he has done. Lord, take us deeper into the gospel. Help us to see what he has done with fresh eyes and help us to respond in a fresh way with a song of praise. Lord, I pray this morning for any in here who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. I I pray that your spirit would work now uh, to open their eyes to the glory of Christ. That they might turn from their sin and come into the ark and be saved. Lord, we praise you this morning. We just pray that your spirit would help us as we respond now uh, to just praise your holy name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.